All right, everybody, buckle up. We're going to be moving nice and fast here. Uh, we're in Isaiah. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, there's pew Bibles there. Maybe you brought your own, but we're in chapter 24. It's on page 585, 585. And uh, once again, our passage is really long that we're covering, but we're, we're not going to read everything. It's four chapters. I'm going to start by reading most of chapter 24, and then as we come to new points in the sermon, I'll just read little snippets from chapters you know, 24, 25, 26, and 27. So um, two times already, Isaiah has given us visions of the future, and today he gives us another one. God will bring final judgment upon this world, but also he will set up his glorious eternal city. Isaiah shows us the details of what's to come by contrasting two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man represents all the nations and cultures and movements, organizations, ideas, trends, and politics and morality of the present age apart from God. The great 5th century theologian Augustine of Hippo uh, wrote a book titled The City of God. In this masterpiece, he wrestled with the implication of these two cities, how the human race is deeply united in building its own world, its own city, on its own terms, apart from God, pridefully promising glorious success, but each generation never really advancing the ball. The city of man will one day pass away, but Isaiah shows us there's another city whose architect and builder is God. And what God gives us in the gospel, it is an invitation, an invitation to come, to leave behind our prideful attachment to the city of man and find our home in the city of God. The text I'm going to read to begin is Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 20. <clears throat> behold, the earth, the, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. In other words, this will come upon all people. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. 
There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the, at, when the grape harvest is done. But then they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. This is the very poetic word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand Forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, this word comes to us uh, at a very important time. We're alive on this earth. There is a city of man that plies hard at um, rising to the heavens in its own glory apart from you. And then there's the city of God. We delight that we belong to it. And it's hard to live in this world. Our, our affections are so easily led astray by the things of this world. So we ask that you would show us more clearly this morning um, these two cities so that we might find our home in yours, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> my freshman year of college, uh, I went to Texas Christian University, TCU. My, my best friend and I, we, picked, we, we decided on colleges this way. How, how good does the name of the school look on a sweatshirt, you know? Uh, so yeah, I know, I, I graduated from Indiana. That's a long story. But my freshman year, I was at TCU and go Horn Frogs. And, and uh, what's a Horn Frog? I don't know. What's a Hoosier? I don't know. I went to those two schools. Um, and so freshman year, it was Thanksgiving time. And the, the long weekend wasn't long enough to travel back to St. Louis. Um, but my parents had family friends, the Schaefer's. Um, and they invited me to their ranch in Texas, uh, in Red Oak. And, um, you know, I didn't really know them. You know how you are when you're like 20, you're like nervous. But I went to that home, and they were so welcoming. Stuart and Diane and two of their kids were there. It, there was such a peace and a comfort. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I felt at home there. You know, I grew up in a messed up home. My dad was an alcoholic, blew away a career, blew away a marriage. My mom had her own sins. She had her own issues, and so did me. I had them. So did my brother. There was a great brokenness in my home. My parents were getting a divorce. 
But here I was at the Schaefer's Ranch, and it was a delight. They had me call home just so I could let my mom know everything's okay, and my mom is just going on and on about who knows what, and I hung up the phone, and I started to weep. And the Schaefer's saw it, and they said, what is it? I said, I wish this was my home. It felt like home should feel. If you've grown up in a challenging home, my guess is you know that feeling too, right? And if you haven't, you can at least imagine it, right? My friends, the the Schaefers were members of the city of God, and it showed. My parents at that time were members of the city of man. My father had since come to know the Lord prior to his passing, but my mother, Marilyn, she's yet to trust in Christ. You can pray for her. What I longed for that Thanksgiving weekend so long ago is really what all mankind longs for, a home, a place of comfort and delight, a loving community, perfect peace. As Ray Ortland Jr. says, our longings are that large, and God's offer is nothing less. Now, Our entire world is occupied with people who are either members of the city of man or members of the city of God. By walking down the street, you'd be hard-pressed to discern who is who. But Augustine helps us probe by digging into our human hearts. He wrote this, listen. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly, by love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God. The one lifts up, his, lifts up its own glory, its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Augustine traced the human stories of two cities all the way back to the first sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. There we see two humanities that are defined by these two loves, the city of man and the city of God. Scripture tells us that after Cain killed his brother Abel, that he became a wanderer upon this earth and he built the first city. Ortland comments that God planted a garden, but Cain built a city. Cain doomed to be a fugitive and a wanderer, always insecure, always struggling to regain on his own terms all that was lost. So he chose to build a city. A city is not just a collection of buildings. It's a mechanism for living independently of God. It's a device for human self-salvation. It's a denial of human mortality. The city, of, the city is man establishing his own enduring greatness, but even civilizations are mortal. Mankind's prideful city building is epitomized in the Tower of Babel story that, that Amy read earlier in our worship service. At Babel, mankind began building a city that was to rival the glory of God. Who needs God? Just watch us build. But God put an end to it. The people were scattered, but this city building of man has not ended yet. 
God put an end to Babel, and we see in Isaiah's passage, he will put an end to the city of man as well. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting. At the end of the Bible, God's final victory isn't just a restored garden going back to Eden. God's final victory is what? A city. You can read it, Revelation 21 and 22. It's the holy city, New Jerusalem, prepared by God, coming down, and God himself will dwell with us. So the last two chapters of the Bible show God coming down to a newly restored earth and the members of the city of God. We're living in it, enjoying it. So we shouldn't be surprised when Isaiah uses imagery of two cities. This is Isaiah's vision in chapters 24 and 27. And and on these days when we just kind of blow through multiple chapters, I encourage you like go home with your notes and, and read through all of it and study it in light of today's message. So we're just going to speed through it. These chapters bring to a climax God's saving purpose for the whole earth. And what he does is God, through Isaiah, as we read this, he, he invites us to find our place in the city of God. Or if you've already found your place in the city of God, be reminded of where your place is as you wander on this earth. So Isaiah gives us five points in these chapters. The first one is this. Listen, the city of man must and will end. The city of man must and will end. Now, you can tell if you belong to the city of God or to the city of man by whether you agree with the fact that the city of man must go. The mindset of the city of man is that mankind's okay without God. We, yeah, we got some challenges, some things to fix. Some days things really are pretty messed up. But by and large, we're okay. And so those who belong don't really give it much thought. They just go about each day trying to make the best of it. This is the mindset of of those who belong to the city of man. Ortland writes, the city of man is where we refuse God's divine order and jury rig our own values and definitions and boundaries. Are Are you picking this up? You following? You seeing the difference? But God says the city of man must go, and I'm bringing it about, just like in Babel. This is how chapter 24 begins. Behold, (laughs) the Lord, Yahweh, will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And then we have God's word on this in verse 3. For the Lord has spoken his word. But why? Some who are skeptical of Christianity will hear this and they'll take offense. My God would never do that. So why? Why must God utterly topple the city of the man, of city of man? And why must we applaud this great work? Reason one, the city of man can never fix itself, for it doesn't even know it needs fixing. When you are lost in the wilderness, miles from civilization, There's only one thing worse than having a broken compass. Can you imagine what that might be? Only one thing worse. One thing that's worse than having a broken compass is not knowing that it's broken. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end or the highest purpose for mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what we're made for. But the city of man refuses this. The city of man has no such desire. 
Their moral compasses are so broken that, that they do not want a working compass if you told them it was broken. And so God is right to topple the whole city of man. This is poetically described in the central verse of chapter 24, which is verse 10. Underline it, not in the Pew Bible, but your own Bible. Here's what it says. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up. This is the only time you're allowed to say that. My kids say, don't say shut up, Dad. Okay, it's here in the Bible. Every house is shut up <laughs> so that no one can enter. <clears throat> Our ESV translation says the wasted city. The King James calls it the city of confusion. RSV, the city of chaos. The actual Hebrew word, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And, and when the creation account, we, where we read, the earth was without form and void. That's the same word. So in our text, you could re-say the city without form is broken down. What is Isaiah teaching us? Well, just as creation, before God created it, was without shape or form, without God's hands operating upon it and making, making sure of things, so too the city of man will become more and more without form and broken down since it's outside of God's good shaping with his hands. All right, but then again we ask, so why must God utterly demolish the city of man? Reason two is that this earth is so broken and defiled by the existence of us, the city of man people, by our ways. Is it not? That the, that the only way to bring about the peace and goodness of the city of God is to remove the city of man, to totally replace it. Verse five illuminates this current reality. We all know this to, 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 in the deepest of our hearts. Here's what it says. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. We're the inhabitants. The whole earth is defiled because of us. Why? For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Verse 5 says, The people of earth, you and me included, have violated the statutes of God that make for fruitful societies. We've broken the everlasting covenant so that, so that our hearts don't want to change. We don't want a covenant-keeping God. We want ourselves on the throne. Now, you might not look at your life this way, but that's how, that's how God sees it. And because this is a collective mindset of the city of man, verse 4 says, look, the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. But those who belong to the city of man, they go on playing the music and dancing as the world withers under its feet. Now, understand, this is not your ungrateful boss or your ex who is guilty, although I'm sure he or she was. This is the mindset of the way of life that causes the earth to mourn and wither. None of us None of us live as we know we should live, let alone live as God calls us to live. We are born with broken compasses that can never deliver us into the home city that our hearts long for. And none of us seem to know or care unless, unless 
God breaks into our lives by his grace, gives us new compasses that point towards him, gives us new hearts that actually beat for him. My friends, the city of man is where people eagerly transgress the good laws of God. See, the city of man must go, and it will. Isaiah describes the effect of the second half of verse 10. I'll read all of verse 10. The wasted city is broken down, okay? Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. Every door of every house one day to come will be shut forever, meaning the gates of the city of man will be forever closed by God. The houses will have no usefulness. You can't even get in. Now, the good news for us today, though, is this. It's that the cities, the city of God, the gates there are flung wide open. And they are not shut to you today. You can enter if you will, but listen and enter. God cries out through Isaiah to everyone who will listen. He calls out, says, come and enter. Have you responded to his call? So the first point Isaiah shows us is that the city of man must and will end. In the last three verses of chapter 24, Isaiah shows us that only God's glory will be magnified on that day. In the city of man, prideful glory-mongering will continue until God ends the world as we know it. And on that day, his glory will finally be more than his earthly competitors. We will finally see it. Here we go. Throw it up there. There we go. Oh, wow, you are so good. Whoever, whoever's doing these slides is amazing. It's my daughter. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven. That would be Satan and his, and his minions. The kings of the earth, on the earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, they will be shut up in a prison. Oh, there it is again. And after many days, they will be punished. Listen, okay. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. The point Isaiah is getting across is that currently skeptics and naysayers alike are able to walk on the earth with chests puffed out chasing after the next deal. They mock the heavens saying, where is God? I don't see him. I see the sun. I see the moon. But for those who have entered the gates of the city of God, we know the answer. Where is God? He's patiently ruling. He is actively calling people to enter his gates with thanksgiving. And do not believe it's a leap of faith like the skeptics insist. Don't ever tell anyone that becoming a Christian is a leap of faith. No, it's a journey of inquiry. It's a wholehearted commitment to lay all the doubts on the table once and for all and to genuinely inquire and find out for oneself. If you're a skeptic here, have you ever done that really? Isaiah speaks in verse 23 and tells us that on that day, there will be no more denials, no more excuse making. 
Right now, the moon and the sun, they shine their glorious light onto this earth, and they get more glory than God for those who live in the city of man. Just, just think about all the sunset selfies, right? But one day, Isaiah says, Isaiah, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. Why? Because God's glory is everywhere, and he shines his light. What a beautiful language here that we're reading. Why will the sun and the moon be humbled? Because the light of God's glory will finally be fully displayed. How does this truth encourage you as a believer today? Well, it's because we live in the already, not yet. The city of God has come already. You can enter it, but it's not yet here fully. And so we who believe can have doubts. But now do not conclude that you're a bad Christian for having doubts. Remember the man who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's much of the Christian life, is it not? But what Isaiah is doing here is he's actually encouraging the remnant, which would include us here today. You know, we have seasons where we just kind of lack full assurance, and we experience struggles that kind of knock us off balance and cause us to start thinking like city of men people. Isaiah wants us to understand that there's a day coming when the majesty and the beauty and the delight and the glory of God will be on full display. But for now, as the Apostle Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Isaiah wants the promise of this day to encourage God's people. Are you being encouraged? Well, we're done with chapter 24. The rest move really quick. Now Isaiah transitions away from the destruction of the city of man to what it will be like in the city of God. First, he shows us that God will host the most satisfying feast for us, his people. Now, those who belong to the city of man know how to feast, right? I estimate 10% of all social media posts show a plate of food. It never really looks as good as you thought it would, does it? Hashtag best meal ever. Hashtag glad parents are paying. <laughs> a number of years ago, Howard Stern invited me to have dinner at his home. It was just seven of us from an earthly perspective. The feast was heavenly. We began with expensive champagne and appetizers that amazed me. Servants, about 10 of them, followed us around they followed Howard and I as we walked down his own private boardwalk to the ocean. As we chatted along the way, I couldn't help but think that I was in the middle of the most amazing dinner invite one could ever experience, right? As we gathered at the dining table, his talented chef and devoted staff served us one amazing course after another. And the conversation truly was stimulating. Howard Stern really is a stimulating human being made in God's image. And yes, I've shared the gospel with them. It was a true feast in every way. That being said, understand this. If you enjoy good meals, but you don't, you don't enjoy the Lord, understand this. Every good meal shared on earth points to a longing within and to a greater feast to come in heaven that Isaiah shows us. First, 
chapter 25 opens with God's people rejoicing over God's victory, right? They're rejoicing over chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. There we go. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Amen. And now, let Isaiah's poetry delight your hearts and what God will do on that day at the feast to come. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, you know that reproach, you experience that daily. And the reproach of his people, will be, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Again, the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amazing. Listen, let this sink in especially if you're young here today, you think this world is going to feed you great things. God has a feast for us. And not just us here today, but people from every generation and from every people group. That's what he said in verse 6, on the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples. And what will this feast be like? Well, the, the food and drink will be thoroughly satisfying. If you struggle with alcoholism here on earth, you will not have a problem in heaven. All this will be fixed for us. It's a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine. And he repeats it. He wants us to know this is good. Of rich food, full of marrow. Now, I don't really like eat the marrow, but anyway. Of aged wine, well-refined. I don't think you get to the bottom and you go, Ooh, yeah. where'd that come from, you know? Howard Stern, sorry to say, but the Lord has you beat. Now, what will make this feast so delightful? Understand this. Isn't the food, but who is serving it and what the host does. Notice this is not a late night run for the border at Taco Bell. This isn't you working your magic with a HelloFresh delivery. This is you sitting down at God's table. This is God preparing a meal for you. This is God serving you. Listen, the city of man, people say, I don't want that. 
thanks, God. I don't want to put you out. But we do want this, do we not? And please delight in this truth. It's pretty amazing. Notice that while we're swallowing up the best meal we've ever eaten and drank, God is swallowing up something too. What is it? Verse 7 and 8 again. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Do you believe that? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, the Apostle Paul looks forward to this day too. He writes, when the perishable, that's us now, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal, that's us now, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What Isaiah is showing us here isn't some idle, like, Subtext. It's not like a footnote in the Bible. This is what God is doing. It's major. It's a major theme. Isaiah also says that at this feast, God will wipe away all your tears. City man people are like, ah, I don't need that. I don't cry very much. What are you talking about? But we do. Verse 8, And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is the feast that God promises. Isaiah again writes, for the Lord has spoken. It is settled. Now, understand this. This feast is only for those who by grace belong to the city of God. Does that make sense? So let me ask you, do you long for this feast? If without hesitation you say not really, well, you can know you belong to the city of man. The people at this feast, listen, have waited all their days to sit there. So how are we to respond? Let us not think that this city of God is dreary. For even Jesus looked forward to this feast. At the Lord's Supper, he said in Matthew 26, he says, I will not drink again from this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus likes to feast. The joy of the feast to come carried our Lord through the pain on the cross, right? So too, Christian, the joy of the feast to come must carry us through the pains of this world. Until that day when Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Next, Isaiah shows us that the Lord will establish the most satisfying peace. The big idea of chapter 26 is that the Lord will do this. He will establish a peace for us. And so, knowing what is to come must therefore change how we think today, right? Chapter 26 begins with these words, verses 1 through 3. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. I don't know what the tune is. I'm not going to try to sing it. Um, We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. 
Open the gates that the righteous nation or nations that keep faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace. Who? Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is the Christian life. Peace because our minds are fixed on, on God and on Christ and we trust. The people of God will one day rejoice singing, we have a strong city whose gates are open to all the righteous from every nation. And how is one made righteous? Only by the mercy and grace of God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. Those, and most of us here, who've come to know that they're not right in God's sight and who cry out for mercy in Christ, those are the people who enter. It's by grace that you experience this. City of man, people say, I don't need grace. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I realize I need grace. And so what happens to those who do trust Christ and enter? He gives us, God gives us more of what we're looking for than we could ever imagine. What do I mean? What, what is it that everyone on earth longs for with every fiber of their being? I mentioned it earlier. It's peace. The problem is citizens of the city of man must settle for droplets of peace at best. People chase after peace through careers and bank accounts, sexual re-identification, or in their travel and leisure pursuits. The problem is, the more droplets of peace we get from our own hands, the more it fails to satisfy us like the drug user who needs more and more drugs just to get the same high. Droplets of peace at best. But our hearts long for what? Is it? We long for a fire hose flood of peace, one that drenches us to the core, where we say, stop. God has this peace for his people. Isaiah calls it perfect peace. Now, I don't know what perfect peace is going to be like, and neither do you. But one thing I do know, if it comes from God, it must be the greatest peace attainable. And it will drench our beings with a firehouse flood. Look at, um, next, look at Isaiah 26, 12. O oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us. This is the perfect peace that is coming. And then we read, For you have indeed done for us all our works. Isaiah is saying, when, when you get into that heavenly city, you and I will all be up there. I don't know. Hey, how's it going? Wow, you look great. Oh, you're really 20 years old. All right. Um, We'll be up there. <laughs> Some of you got it. All right. Um, we'll be up there and we will look back upon our lives from a heavenly perspective and we will know something. Every good work, every good thing that you ever did was really a work of God in you. For you have indeed done for us all our works. Amazing, right? But Isaiah wants us to know this now so we can live in light of this truth. 
City of man, people recoil at such an idea. I've got my good deeds. There's a God. He's got to know I've, I've done some good things, you know. There was that time, you know, back in that time. And if they don't count for anything, then who wants that kind of God anyway? City of God, people look at it differently because God came to us and has given us new hearts and renewed minds, a new compass. We have come to know that all of our so-called deeds of the past were really just an elaborate means of avoiding God, right? Hell will be full of people who gloried in their own good deeds, thinking they could avoid God. Back to Isaiah's point, though. Sorry, I got a little off track. Christian, on that day in the future, you'll realize that, that God was at work constantly through your life. By the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us and works in us and through us. And though at times, right, we grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin, well, the Spirit, he's unrelenting. God has not nor will not give up on us. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as God's son or daughter. If you're in Grace Group uh, 301, we're working on this. We have been sealed for the city of God. And so think through the implications for us today. The more we believe Isaiah's words today, the more the peace of God comes in upon us. How so? Think about it. God is speaking to us through Isaiah today while we're still alive. Therefore, God wants us to know that on that day, we will delight that everything that good that we've done was because God was and is at work in us. God wants us to live in light of this truth. And so no matter how bitter our trials and losses in this life are, when we know that God is present and active and working in us, we can celebrate. So many Christians are just, they just pity in themselves all the time. Big pity party. They just look at their lives as if, woe is me. But they don't see that, the, that God is at work, even in your sorrows, so that you can trust in him, lean on him, come alive and sing. God wants us. He wants us to know that he is with us working out good things right now. Can you let that truth sink in? Changes how you live, right? City of God's citizens live their lives this way. City of man's citizens do not. They recoil at the idea of God getting any credit for their supposed good deeds. All the glory goes to themselves, not God. Another reason why this city of man must be toppled. Our last point is really short. Here we go. Christ will deliver his people into a full salvation. Big idea here is this. That day when God will bring about all this has already been won by Jesus Christ. In chapter 27, um, God shows us how this victory is won. We're just looking at one verse, chapter 27. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. It's all the same Thing. It's not like three different things, all right? But this is apocalyptic language. I'm glad I said that right. I was afraid I might tongue twist on that. Uh, again, let me quote Ortland. Here's what he says. Leviathan symbolizes the monster of moral chaos that has raged in our world since the fall of Adam. The evil established in the city of man, listen, is worse than human. It is demonic. 
Isaiah borrows a mythological image from the ancient world to describe it. He sees it as a coiling, wriggling, serpentine monster, not because he is a primitive thinker, but because nothing less can tell us the truth about evil. We live in a world that has become so numb to evil. Flannery O'Connor wrote, Our age has domesticated despair, and we've learned to live with it happily. We just need another good meal out, right? Had a rough week. Well, I'll just feed myself something special. We've domesticated this. Thankfully, our God does not live happily with it. Ortland states, the victory God has won over everything set against his glory and our happiness is the greatest truth of the universe. And some of you didn't even hear it. All right. The victory God has won over everything set against his glory and our happiness is the greatest truth in the universe. God has not only restrained evil, he has not only made it to serve his good purposes, think earlier in Isaiah, right? He will annihilate it at the end of time. Now, the New Testament shows us that God has already won this victory over Leviathan. We now only wait for it, wait for the death blow to bring about its full effect. And how did this death blow happen? It happened upon the cross of Christ. Christ triumphed over the demonic forces in the heavenly realms. Just read your New Testament. It's in there somewhere. Now, imagine Satan's surprise when he thought he was killing the divine Son of God on a cruel cross. I did it. But it was always God's plan to forgive our sin and welcome us into his city by that same bloody cross. Leviathan. What does it mean for us now? It means the devil no longer has power to manipulate us. And it means we can now live with great devotion to Christ as current citizens of the city of God now. And so we must stop allowing ourselves to being given over to the city of man. We do this as Christians when we live with an earthly mindedness. Earthly mindedness finds its joy and happiness in the world only. That is how the city of man people live. Sadly, we are influenced by it too. I like what the great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote so many years ago. We're like talking 1640s. Here's what he wrote. You guys listening? Earthly mindedness will kill your heart for God. Or your heart for God will kill your earthly mindedness. Isaiah's words here are meant to help us to give our hearts to God. And how can we not? In a moment, we're going to gather at the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, God's feast for his people now. It's just pointing to the future, but it's a good feast. At this meal, understand in your minds as you're sitting there and coming forward, he will serve us. He will feed us here. He will wipe your tears if you have any right now. And he will remind us that he has swallowed up death for us. That's what this meal shows us every week. And so, let us rejoice with the words Isaiah says that we will one day say, 
on that day with great delight. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, this, this message from Isaiah is critical for us, your people. As we live here today, we, we are so easily influenced by the city of man, all of its glitter, but it is passing away. Help us now not to be earthly-minded. Help us to entrust our hearts to these words of Isaiah that we may walk as citizens of the city of God for your glory. We delight in the fact that all of our good works is you in us. We want more of you in us. Amen.